The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 19, The Brave and the Bold, number 50 through 73, part 1. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, I will be joined by special guest MDG to discuss a pivotal era in the classic DC comic series, The Brave and the Bold, as we look at issues number 50 through 73. Over the first 49 issues of The Brave and the Bold, DC tweaked the formula for the series multiple times, first starting off as an adventure series, then moving into a tryout book for finally, with number 50, hitting on the idea of a team-up series. Starting with issue 74, DC honed that formula so that every issue included Batman teaming up with a random guest star. But before they hit upon that successful formula, they tried a number of different iterations between issues 50 and 73 teaming up all sorts of oddball DC heroes in unusual combinations, leading to some great stories, and more often, some real head-scratchers. In this episode, MDG and I will look at issues 50 through 56, discussing the stories, the creators, and how DC, and particularly writer Bob Haney, fumbled their way towards success. First, though, as always, I'll be talking to MDG about his history as a comic book reader and collector, and I'll also be asking about his time as a professional comic book writer with stories published by both DC and Acclaim. So, without further ado, here's my discussion with MDG, followed by the first part of our two-part talk about The Brave and the Bold, issues 50 through 73. Enjoy! Other than the issues we just read, what was the most recent comic book that you've read? Actually, over this weekend, uh, I read Bloody Cardinal by Richard Sala, who's always been a favorite of mine for a while. And I'm trying to like catch up on his. But uh, are you familiar with his work? No, I'm not familiar with that. He's one of the people I discovered like through Raw. He's got kind of an Edward Gorey gothic style and does like uh, mystery stories, um, like peculia and um you know other things like that i always thought he would really be great for to do a batman story it's got a very um 1930s urban feel to a lot of his stuff yeah no i'm not familiar with him raw is is not a magazine that i read it i think it was probably a little before my time i haven't seen any back issues for it but yeah. The other thing I, I did find, um, even though this does count as a brave and bold, I was going through um, a bunch of boxes to pull out stuff that um, I'm going to sell at a show this weekend or try to sell. And there was a uh, DC giant that reprinted a lot of the strange sports stories, or not a lot, about three or four. So I, I read that again recently. I'll be interested to, when we get to that part of the you know background of brave and bold, talk about strange sports stories because I have a soft spot for it. Um, yeah, I really like the '70s series when Joe Simon was editing it, but we can get yep. we can get into that momentarily. So, what was the first yeah. comic that you ever read? Um, let me just go through here, and uh, it was an early Batman, or not early, but it was a Batman that had um, the Riddler on the cover. It's the first one I kind of remember uh, 
reading the actual comic book. Uh, I know that I kind of recall, okay, it looks like here it's Batman 179. And I remember like getting 179, 181, which is the first Poison Ivy um, around the same time. Also 184, all those covers kind of ring a bell to me. And I can't quite remember where I got them from or why. Um, there's a good chance my uncle bought them for me because um, he was living with us for a while. And even before that, when I'd go over to my uh, grandmother's house, he would be there and he would uh, we would sit and watch the Superman TV show. Now, this was right around the time the... Um the TV show came out, right? The Batman show. Did that influence your reading at all? Or Yeah, I think that's why I gravitated toward Batman and, again, the Superman issues, again, because I saw them on TV. So I'd see house ads for things like, uh, you know, Metamorpho and Aquaman and, you know, the other characters. And I'd see them in the Justice League because that was another title i pick up. But um, those were pretty much like the core things that I looked at. Yeah, again, I keep teasing what we're going to be talking about, but one thing I did find interesting in our Brave and the Bold reading was the evolution of the way they, of Batman's character. There seemed to be a very clear influence uh, from the TV show in how they were writing him when they get to that part of the series, uh, which was quite jarring. Reading them all in a row, his his character like, drastically shifts from one issue to the next. But, again, we'll get into that in a minute. Who's a creator that you think is underrated? Really, um, the, the name that comes to me is Spain Rodriguez, who uh, passed away a few years ago and uh, you know, was known for Trash Man and some of the uh, you know other underground work he did. I just, uh, reading his stuff, especially his like autobiographical stuff about uh, being a uh, biker and borderline hood in um, Buffalo uh, and uh, the collection Cruising with the Hound is like really great stuff. And, you know, he's just got this really sharp graphic style that I've always liked. For more mainstream people, you know, it's hard to say anybody who's underrated at this point just because everybody seems to have their fans. You know, I would say Bob Oxner, but, you know, lately, um, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about just how great, you know, a lot of his late 60s work was. There's just some really gorgeous stuff there. And a similar artist, Owen Fitzgerald, who also did um, the Bob Hope uh, comic in the 50s. You know, again, I think, you know, years ago I would have said Nick Cardi, but I think, you know, a lot of people have come around to just appreciate the great stuff he did um, in the 60s and through the 70s. Yeah, I know I certainly uh, have come around. Part of it is just getting more familiar with his earlier work. I feel like he's an artist that suffered a lot but because of the editorial mandate of how they did the cover design in the mid-70s with DC. He was still doing a lot of covers, but he, they were kind of forcing him to make them more bland. And uh, I think that, again, this is a little before my time, but the impression I have is that it kind of tainted his reputation a little among the fans who forgot how great his earlier stuff was when he was given more of an opportunity to really, really draw stuff. Oh, yeah. I I mean, you know, I'd be going through comics with, you know, friends of mine and, you know, we'd say, oh, boy, another exciting Nick Carty cover. But, uh, you know, where they're they're well drawn and well designed, which is kind of there you know not much to, not much to get to really hang on to so who's a creator that you think is overrated do you like hate mail <laughs> um one thing that's always bothered me is just like um the way steranko is like really heralded by a lot of people and you know again can't go wrong with those uh 
you know, with the um, Nick Fury stories and those issues. But it was like after that it was like waiting for like what's what's the next thing he's gonna do? You know, where you know what's the next boundary he's gonna break? It, it just seemed like after that he, he ran out of steam or something. I, you know, you know there'll be covers here and there, and you know the eight page or ten page Superman story and four hundred or something. You know, but it just never seemed to be the next thing that I was kind of expecting from him. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I've kind of wondered, and this is something I could easily research, but I have not <laughs> done. But just what he was doing uh, after, say, like 1973, just what was he doing to, you know, just make money? How do, how do you live when you're... Because among comics fans, of course, he's known as a, this great comic book artist, but he wasn't actually doing anything in comics. So I assume he was must have been working in advertising or animation or something. Um, well, I know he did, um, like, production paintings and things like that. You know, he did some early ones for Indiana Jones or, you know, um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, you know, he did things like Chandler and, um, oh, you know, the Outland adaptation. Um, I don't know if you've seen Chandler. Um, it came out, I think, in the mid-70s, where it was kind of a uh, kind of a Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, film noir pastiche, um, heavily illustrated. But um, And again, the illustrations are great, but unlike what we think of now as a graphic novel, it is kind of fully written. And you could, the, I, I noticed this a few years ago when I was reading it again, you could take the pictures away. You know, they illustrate the story, but they don't add anything to, to it the way, um, you know, if you read like a graphic novel by Will Eisner, where the pictures are really carrying a lot of the action and emotion. So, you know, that's, that's always been kind of a bugaboo for me is, you know, like how Steranko seemed to be someone who was going to, you know, maybe lead the next charge. And, you know, you got to imagine that in the 80s and 90s, there were opportunities where he could have gone to Marvel and said, I want to do a 48-page Nick Fury. But I don't know. So who's a character that you love? I, you know, I, I'll default to Batman just because uh, I haven't read anything you know, probably in the past 20, 25 years, but it can, I can always go back to Golden Age, Adam Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age Batman and read them and enjoy it. My uh, favorite period of Batman is probably late silver, early bronze, kind of after the new look, but uh, when Robbins was writing it and uh, you know, Irv Novick was doing most of the uh, artwork, or a lot of the artwork. And who's a character that you dislike or even hate I, I don't know if i hate anybody i'm just like uninterested in in things so like i don't think i've ever you know people always say like punisher but i don't, I don't think i've ever read anything by the punisher so it's just i'm you know and because characters are just so fluid you know depending on who's doing it you know this might be somebody i i love in one incarnation and hate in another so there's no one i will like not read or that's not that's not true. There's a lot of people I will not read, but I, I have no feelings for them at all. So, if you were gonna be stranded on a desert island, what comic book would you bring with you? A series or collection? Wow. Um, one thing I, I that just kind of came to mind is, and I know it exists as like these big uh, slipcase collections, would maybe be like John Stanley's Little Lulu, just because you could there's. Those are just fun stories to read and funny and 
there's a lot going on in the artwork as far as you know just great cartooning and action reaction animation type of stuff i mean th- those are you know fun to read and if you could have any dream series any creator any characters uh any anything you wanted what would be your your dream comic book i i think one that i did not get to see and you know we're not going to get to see it now but when dc had the shadow um i guess early on they were talking with alex toth about possibly drawing it and I i would love to see a shadow story especially a good you know good size meaty one uh, by Alex Toth. I just think that would be wonderful. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm not interested in the shadow at all, I have to say, but I've, Toth's art, when he's inking himself, is fantastic. We, we discovered, I don't know if you listen to the Blackhawk podcast, but we discovered yeah. there's, a ba- there's a backup story there where he's inked by someone else and it's just a complete disaster. Well, you know, he's um, you know he's very dependent on inkers, and it's it's got to be somebody who just isn't trying to pretty it up or add to it. You know, it's just, you know, maybe, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, Kirby, you just kind of ink what's there and, and deal with it. You're not gonna, you know, don't try and make it more conventional. You know, it, it's all kind of in the composition and use of black and shadow. So I've got one more question for you. I know that you've worked you know, professionally in comics. What specifically do you want to know? I was just curious, like, yeah, how that came about and what your experience was working in the industry. You know, they were both pretty weird. Um, We had met Joe Staten and um, we're dealing, acting as dealers for some of his uh, original art and doing it with a few other people. And, you know, we kind of used that as an in to write a Godort story um, and get that to DC, which unfortunately Joe did not draw. Um, and, you know, it was an okay experience. You know, when when it, we did see it in the finished form, it was, again, we had worked with Joe for um, a negative burn, which is kind of a uh, kind of an independent comic. But, he, you know, he was nice enough to draw a couple scripts for us just kind of on spec um, with a character called Tom Foolery, which we kind of adapted from a proposal we had in D.C., for the odd man which was uh, a character ditko created um in the mid 70s and they didn't bite so we kind of changed that around to tom foolery and one thing about joe staten when we were working with him is you give him a script and he drew 120 percent of what was in there when the Gnor story came out from dc again it was a younger uh artist i don't even remember who um and he drew like 80% of what was there as far as trying to make something fun and, um, you know, stuff going on in the background. Um, I do remember, you know, we had to do like a, you know, two page synopsis of a 10 page story. And, you know, we we're doing a lot of the setup. And then, you know, I just had like two sentences, you know, and then there's a big fight. And so the editor called me and I remember him saying, well, there's something in comics we like to call ACT ION. I said, okay, yeah, I get it, you know, but uh, I'm not going to spend, if I've, if I've only got two pages to outline this whole story, I'm not going to go blow by blow on the uh, on how this fight scene goes. Working with Acclaim, we had uh, latched up with uh, Bart Sears, who had um, a studio in Syracuse, and a lot of what he was doing at that time was uh, toy designs for Marvel action figures. And he was uh, trying to get his own ominous press off the ground. And I think that's being revived again. But we had been talking with him. And then whoever, 
he was on uh, EXO, and whoever had been writing it uh, dropped out to pick up a book at Marvel. So we kind of lucked out because they needed a couple of writers right away. Because at that point, Acclaim looked at their sales data and said, well, when our books come out, anything that's sold gets sold within the first two weeks. So why should we put them out every month? Let's just try and put it out to every two weeks. But so... They had uh, the artists and writers on a two-week schedule. You know, what they did is uh, Bart Sears and Andy Smith alternated on issues of EXO. I think he wrote about six of them. But I can't say I'm you know, really proud of that work. Um, the way the industry was at that time and, and may still be now, they would solicit synopses uh, to Diamond months ahead of time. So by the time it was time for us to write the scripts... It said, well, you know, here's the one paragraph you're writing this to, and this is going to be like four parts uh, where Exo was going off Earth and gets kidnapped. And it was like, uh, you know, just kind of trying to put one of these out every two weeks where we would do a page-by-page breakdown, send that to um, Barter Andy, get pencil pages faxed back, and then, you know, dialogue it over a day or two and send those back, and then it would come out. But uh, it, it, was, it was fun, you know, doing it at the time. And uh, because you got paid by the page, no matter how many words were on there, and for a claim they wanted to have, you know, maybe three full-page splashes and, you know, one or two double-page splashes in there, you know, you could, we really could, you know, dialogue some of those things in, you know, a few hours once uh, we had the breakdowns and the artwork that. Now, are you still doing uh, any work in comics, uh, any indie work or self-published or anything like that? No, I mean, we, we talk about it, you know, all the time, but, uh, you know, we're, we're both just really busy with, you know, jobs and family. I'll mention, uh, you know, my partner, or my friend's name is Jeff Bailey, and we've been uh, friends since college and, uh, you know, worked on a lot of different things together. We, you know, did radio writing and uh, worked for video companies. Um, and now we work separately, but uh, yeah, he's always saying, "Yeah, we we got to do something." I say, "I know." Do you have the time? No. Well, neither do I. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can uh, start getting into this. One thing I find interesting about Brave and the Bold is that it shifted content several times. Uh, they took the the title, continued it, but they changed what what the title was doing a number of times because when it originally started in the mid 1950s it was a an action series like adventure featuring most you know most prominently Joe Kubert's the Viking Prince as the as the lead for a number of years mm-hmm. but eventually they shifted away from that and went turned into a tryout series kind of like showcase where they would introduce mm, some new characters, but a lot. In a lot of cases, they were reintroducing uh, older ideas or older characters that have been sort of revamped for the Silver Age. So we got things like the first appearance of the Justice League of America, and then uh, characters like Hawkman, uh, and they went through the number of different sort of tryout issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you know, Brave and Bold started like in the mid '50s, you know, right after the Code. And I wonder if you know that was just a matter of kind of looking around for is there another genre um, that uh, you know comics could make a mark in, or that there's some kind of market for. And you know, there was in there you had you know Viking Prince and Silent Night. And I've only read you know a few of those stories in reprints. You know, great art by Kubert and uh, you know, Russ Heath on different things. And actually, I'm, I'm Almost kind of surprised it went 
you know, two or three years with that. I guess there was enough of uh, a draw for that. But then, you know, at the as the Silver Age comes in, I guess they figured, you know, let's start trying out some new concepts. You know, the most uh, most important being, you know, uh, Justice League, you know, kind of reviving the idea of the JSA. And now that we're repopulating the uh, stands with superheroes, you know, let's put together the team of all the flagship heroes. Yeah, it's interesting, like, uh, some of the decisions they made with the Justice League feel a little bit backwards to modern audiences. Like, they didn't want to have Batman and Superman on the cover or prominent in the stories because they didn't want to, like, oversaturate them. Uh, I think Marvel uh, maybe should have taken a cue from that when their treatment of Wolverine. But it, but it's a little bit odd. It's interesting also, it's just a bit of trivia, that even though Aquaman had been appearing in his own series for almost 20 years at the, that point, Brave and the Bold 28 is the first time he ever appeared on the cover of a comic book. And uh, they went through this, this tryout phase for a while uh, with varying successes. Some books took off, some concepts didn't go so well. And uh, towards the end, they ended up doing a number of issues in a row in the late early 1960s but the late number 40s of the series of the strange sports stories yeah and um the, you know that's i guess you know the thinking was well you know kids love sports you know let's see what we could do with that um you know and it was julie schwartz editing it and i think garner fox writing most of the stories who i'm gonna go out on a limb seem like two guys who really have like no interest in sports um but when, when you read those, they're basically similar to what was in Strange Adventures or Mystery in Space or something like that, but just some kind of sports hook to it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with aliens like kidnapping people and, and making them run you know, some sort of intergalactic Olympics or a race or they have to golf for the future of humanity. There's a lot of like in gorillas playing baseball yeah. and that sort of stuff, which I love. Uh, <laughs> You know, as I as I mentioned, I I'm more of a fan of the '70s revival, but I I love the just completely crazy concepts that they come up with for some of these sports stories because they're just so goofy. Yeah, and I'm not sure, but I want to say Infantino drew the vast majority of those issues, if not every one, every story, and every issue. And he was doing something interesting where they would have they would have a text block with like a silhouette in it and then kind of a regular panel and then a regular another you know caption text with a silhouette and then another panel which um it was an interesting technique i don't know why they were you know why they were using it here it was just something different at the time so strange sports stories ran for a few issues ending with issue 49 and at this point i should mention the brave and the bold was a bi-monthly series but starting with issue 50 they changed directions once again and turned the book into a team-up book and in some ways really the first team-up book in comics uh, prior mm -hmm. to this there was world's finest i think most people probably may not be aware that for up until around 1960 or so maybe the late 50s even though batman and superman were in every issue they weren't actually teaming up until the until the late 50s they would have separate stories and so the, the idea of these two different heroes teaming up on a regular basis was relatively new. But with this issue, uh, issue 50, 
DC decided uh, to turn Brave and the Bold into a series where you'd have a seemingly random selection of superheroes teaming up uh, every issue. Yeah, and you know the first uh, the first team up is Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter, and you know I think it's interesting. It's two characters that well, Green Arrow had been around quite a while. Martian Manhunter at this point, what maybe uh, four or five years. But I know Martian Manhunter, I don't think, ever had any cover appearances outside JLA. So I'm wondering if they, you know, purposely picked two people who never headlined their own book. Yeah, it's a good question. I thought the same thing when I was reading issue 50 because it it felt sort of like, in a lot of the series, as we'll get into here, especially for the first couple years, it felt like even though they're positioning it as a team-up book, it still felt like a tryout to me like they're they're trying out these characters to see if they're popular enough to get their own title issue 50 came out in 1963 and within a year or so of this issue coming out and of course there's a lot of lead time and it takes them a while to get the sales back green arrow who had been featured in his own backup series since 1941 that series finally ended not long after this uh, he had been in world's finest and in 1964 they ended his series Whereas Martian Manhunter went the other direction after this issue came out, and in 1964 he was promoted to the star of his own series in House of Mystery, and from for a number of issues he was the lead story and uh, cover attraction for that series. And I wonder if this issue was sort of testing the waters for Green Arrow or Martian Manhunter solo book. I know Martian Manhunter was you know a Jack Schiff creation, so you know he launched him in detective and then had t- you know took over house of mystery so it might have just been a character liked or wanted to use um green arrow was green arrow in jla by this time do you know yes he joined in issue four so that would have been in, in 60 or early 61 i forget exactly one but yeah he would have been in justice league by now yeah so you know he was appearing you know somewhere yeah but again it's kind of an interesting uh interesting pair up and you know there was they did have kind of a splash page to say, you know, kind of announce here's the new theory or the, you know, the new approach for Brave and Bold. We're going to be bringing, you know, two heroes together um, and write in with your ideas. I think they also said, I also, this is, um, they had a letter page in here and on the letter page, you know, they listed the writers and artists, which um, is not something they would do later on. Uh, Letter pages would disappear and I don't think they ever credited any of the uh, any of the creators. Yeah, I noticed that too. The, it says here in issue 50, they have this big thing saying, this is what fans have been asking for, so write in and vote for your teams. But within a few issues, they stopped publishing a letter column entirely. I wonder whether any fans had actually been asking for this, and whether anyone's votes actually mattered at all because it it didn't seem like they really promoted that idea for very long yeah and um again it's uh it's a lot of uh the usual suspects except for a few exceptions that we'll you know get to later on so in issue 50 some of it's hard to even remember even though i just read this what some of the plots are because yeah. there a lot of them make no sense and are they're very interchangeable this uh, there were some aspects of this that puzzled me being someone who came into martian manhunter post crisis because i'm used to martian manhunter being the last you know 
living Martian. But in this issue, at one point, uh, there's a gang of evil Martians that that like deck him, and he ends up flying to Mars to talk to the Martian Council to consult with them about capturing this crook that's running rampant in Star City. And I was just like, huh? There's just so there's just Martians everywhere, and anytime they they come to Earth, they have the same powers as Martian Manhunter. This seems like a huge uh, like national security issue. You know, at least yeah. with Superman, there's only one guy. With Martians, there could be like millions of these dudes. Yeah, and, and, and I had I wrote a note about you know him going back to Mars because, you know, original concept was Doctor Erdl or whatever his name was created this matter transference thing that brought Martian Manhunter to Earth and then blew up, so he couldn't go back to Mars. And with this, it makes it sound like he's you know using that machine to go back and forth you know all the time. So. Yeah, why does he even stay here? They yeah. make a mention of him being exiled, but I don't know. I was I was confused. Now I think this was written by Bob Haney. Am I correct in that? It, yes, and um, pretty much everything. And we'll talk about the exceptions. You know, in Brave and Bold, you know, is written by Bob Haney. Yeah, I do. I definitely want to talk about this sort of. You can see the evolution of Bob Haney because of course for fans now he's sort of renowned for his very quirky style and for really not paying much attention to continuity or character or anything really just doing whatever the hell he feels like and there's a little bit of that in evidence here but it feels much more restrained than some of the stories we're going to come across later on in this run yeah and Sometimes you get the feeling Bob Haney just went to somebody and said, okay, give me a two-minute rundown on this character. I'm, I'm writing a book with him. I bet that's exactly what, <laughs> <laughs> what was going on. The so, only other note I have on this one is, you know, I just love this version of the Arrow car that has, like, that big, these huge fins in the back. Yeah, this is this is Green Arrow when he was still in his uh, Batman ripoff phase where... Yeah. It, not my favorite era, Green Arrow. Uh, I mean, I love Green Arrow post issue eighty five of Brave and the Bold, but uh, he's just so goofy before that. I do appreciate his Arrow card, though. It's it's um, if anything, it's it's more it's even campier than the Batmobile. Yeah. So in issue fifty one, we get what to me seems like another tryout. Uh, it's Hawkman and Aquaman. Now, Aquaman had his own series at this point, uh, but this comes just a few months before Hawkman number one. So this was after he had had his official tryout, but before they gave him his own series. Well, he also had four issues that he split, uh, four issues of Mystery in Space that was split with uh, Hawkman and Adam Strange. So this might have been just about the same time. Ah, well, that so, makes uh, sense because it feels like they're they're definitely like DC's. It was very cautious at the time in terms of putting out new books, and it really felt like they were testing the waters with a lot of these characters. Sometimes successfully, in, in this case, successfully. Even though I found this story to be completely ridiculous, and not necessarily in a good way. The plot is about this creature who is half fish, half bird. And he can control fish, and then he gets this like ancient, like South American artifact that allows him to control birds. And there's a lot of really confusing sections in here yeah. where like the Atlanteans are like just really afraid that they're gonna be attacked by birds, and uh, that didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, what? 
okay, he can control birds. You're under the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know they talk about Hawkman also being able to control birds. Which, you know, <laughs> he didn't do. He he would be able to talk to them. He'd send them out on little spying miss- missions sometimes. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I my note here just says stupid story. <laughs> Well, uh, there's one part in particular that really like boggled me at the end. Of, I think it's the end of chapter two. It doesn't really matter, but they've just gotten beaten in there. Aquaman and Hawkman are trying to figure out what to do. And Hawkman goes, hmm, wait a minute. I th- this gives me an idea. I think I might have a plan. And then the next chapter starts. Aquaman has gone off back to Atlantis. And there's like this whole section where he's underwater. And then when they cut back to Hawkman, he's just back in his apartment moping around because Hawkgirl's been kidnapped. <laughs> And I'm like, that was your plan? Was to, to go home and mope? Because <laughs> that's not a very effective plan. Yeah. Like, they completely forgot that he had a plan because during the next scene he's in, he's moping around and he sees this magic egg from space. And he's like, oh, seeing that egg gives me a plan. I was like, well, I thought you already had a plan. I hope this egg plan is better than your current plan because your current plan sucks. Yeah. I mean, you, you paid a lot more attention to the story than I did. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, it just really struck me yeah. because the, the, the I have a plan yeah. was the cliffhanger at the end of the chapter to get you to turn the page, but there's no payoff. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a plan. His plan is to put on a sweater. <laughs> yeah, you're going to turn the page anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, well, only because I have to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, one thing that struck me, like, uh, if anyone's reading along at home, which I don't recommend, but <laughs> if you were, at the end of page 12, there's this... Um, there's a sequence where we get a, the origin story of this monster where he finds his magic gem under the ocean and it transforms him into this beast. And um, there's one panel with no captions or, or anything showing the transformation. And it is super creepy. And when I saw that panel, I was like, it's really unfortunate that during this era, DC was keeping such a tight editorial rein on their art style because they had so many really good artists working for them that were not allowed to do their best work because they wanted everything to be so tight. Yeah. Now this one was Howard Purcell who um, I've just seen here and there. I think, uh, was he doing sea devils for a while maybe? So he's, yeah, he's not an artist I'm overly familiar with. So anyway, I think we've said enough about this issue. It's not very good and it, it makes no sense. I assume Bob Haney wrote it because it made so little sense. And yeah. again, we get more continuity things like Hawkman being able to control birds, which he can't. Uh, and then just, again, the end of the plot is that they basically lose, except for Aquaman happens to get defeated in a stroke of comp- of amazing luck directly outside the cave holding the magic rock that turned the guy into the creature to begin with. So in all the vast billions of square miles of ocean that he happens to get defeated right outside the cave that that has the uh the guy's magic rock in it uh, anyway yeah. sorry I... <laughs> it, it, it's by the numbers okay we're gonna team up aquaman and hawkman let's have a half fish half bird monster aquaman controls fish obviously hawkman's gonna be able to control the birds yeah it's 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 bad but yeah. <laughs> uh, on a much brighter note issue 52 might have been the best issue of the whole run for me um, this is Sergeant Rock teaming up with Johnny Cloud and the Haunted Tank. Yeah, and this one is not handy. It's uh, Bob Canninger and, you know, drawn by Joe Kubert, who always, you know, brings a sense of reality and drama, you know, to whatever he's doing. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of his art. I'm a big fan of DC uh, war comics in general. 
Again, I'm more of a, a later, like a Bronze Age person with my taste in terms of their stories when they get a little more unbuttoned. But this is this is great. Basically, they're sent on a mission, or Johnny Cloud is sent on a mission to retrieve this uh, allied agent behind enemy lines, and he gets shot down, and it's a person trapped in, in an, a suit, an iron suit, so it's very much riffing on the man in the iron mask and by the end of the issue basically they get the person out and it turns out the secret agent is actually mademoiselle marie yeah but you know the way they do it is you know johnny cloud is shot down and he crashes right where the haunted tank is so um so the person in the iron suit and johnny cloud are with the haunted tank crew for a while and i think the tank gets blown up and here comes you know sergeant rock and easy company uh, over the hill so I think they did, you know, they did a really good job of just kind of uh, moving it along and hitting all of the uh, their uh, war characters at the time. Yeah, there's a cool sequence where the Nazis capture them and are trying to figure out who the agent is, and they all claim to basically be the agent. It's a <laughs> taken right out of of Spartacus, but I really liked pretty much everything about this issue. The art was great. The story was cool. I, I do wonder from reading all these DC books and Haunted Tank in particular, just how often in the real world a tank shot down a fighter plane because that happens seemingly every issue in DC where there's a tank that shoots down a fighter plane. I'm guessing that the instances of that happening were pretty much zero in, in the actual war. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this was a good war story. I, I'm not going to say everything in it struck me as being totally realistic, but uh, for war comics, it were. Yeah, I, I also wondered, was this done for Brave and Bold, or were, you know, was this going to be some kind of other war special, but they decided to put it in here. Yeah, it did seem like an odd team-up for this title, but I'm glad it was in here because it was so much better than most of the other stories. For instance, issue 53, where we get the Flash teaming up with the Atom. Also, I just want to mention in 52, with the uh, three battle stars, uh, it did have a letter page that seemed to have some kind of generic uh, letters to the war comics. So that was probably just kind of pulled out of, uh, you know, letters sent to our army at war or whatever. So, yeah, with issue 53... It's an alien world that has good scientists and bad scientists and I forgot exactly why, but their world was shrunk down, and now they were coming to Earth, and they were going to expand where Earth is. Unfortunately, this sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not necessarily, you know, because you're thinking of this story either. There's a few others like that. I think this, you know, this, and, uh, the Atom, of course, has to shrink down and enter this alien world where he meets um, one of the good scientists who I think has a beautiful daughter i think yeah it's very typical of uh dc at this time the big thing you know for me in this issue is you know alex toth uh, drew it yes so so that's you know interesting you know gives it a little something to go there but it's not it's not his best work and it's not uh that engaging a story you know very yeah again very typical yeah i, I have a note here that the the visuals are great the plot makes no sense at all uh it makes Adam, enough sense it, I guess. <laughs> I mean, basically, I, I find the Adam to be uh, a little bit frustrating, but in the same, and they use him basically in the same way as what we were just talking about with the Hawkman and Aquaman team up, where they're like, well, Aquaman controls fish, Hawkman controls birds, so we've got to have a guy that controls birds and fish. 
And so Adam is like, he never just has a regular superhero mission. There's always some incredibly convoluted reason why they need to have someone shrink to microscopic size for this specific mission. Nobody just calls Adam because they need help because he's like a, a cool guy. They only call him for this one specific thing, which I understand plot wise, but it also makes all of his stories extremely repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. And he always has to be like thrown into uh into whatever the thing is, whether it's like a Adam or this like, uh, you know, miniature world, you know, somebody has to throw him in there and, you know, he manages to, f to find exactly where he has to be. Yeah. The only other note I have for this is I find Iris West to be just, she's written so horribly in these silver age appearances where she is just constantly nagging and ripping on Barry Allen for how inadequate he is. Mm -hmm. That's the only dialogue she has in all of the issues that she appears here with flash as one of the stars. If she just shows up to in like a couple panels to basically remind Barry that he is useless and she should dump him. Yeah. Well, you know, again, there was, you know, it was the fastest man alive, but uh, when he's in a civilian identity, he's always late. Okay. All right, so it. now we get to one of the most important issues of the run, 54. I've got a lot more to say about this one. Okay, yeah. This is the team-up of uh, Kid Flash, Robin, and Aqualad. Now, mm -hmm. this is not... I've had a lot of arguments with people about this online and occasionally in person. This is not actually the first appearance of the Teen Titans. It's the origin of the Teen Titans, but as we'll get into momentarily, because I have a lot to get off my chest about this, <laughs> the Teen Titans don't actually appear until issue six. So what we have yeah. here is basically uh, this team up where there's this group of um, teenagers who are feuding with the adults in this town because... As we see throughout this issue, all adults are just complete a-holes. And so they basically call on their um, kid superheroes. They send them letters, each letter saying, oh, we need your help here. And so Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad each independently show up in this town. And all the teenagers have disappeared. And it turns out they've disappeared because uh, a guy who can control tornadoes using an ancient Native American artifact has kidnapped them in order to force the town to pay him a certain quantity of uh, pigeon feathers. Pigeon feathers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because he is the descendant of the person who originally owned the land that the town was on, and the agreement was that he and his descendants would get one passenger pigeon feather every year, and passenger pigeons went extinct in 1913 or something like that. So they laugh him out of town, and then he happens to find this tornado stick in a cave. That was it, right? It's, it makes so much sense when you describe it like that, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I wonder who came up with this, you know, uh, this idea. So editing at this time is still uh, Murray Boltonoff and George Cashdan are co-editing it. And, I, you know, it, it probably seems, you know, obvious, you know, we have the Justice League, let's get the sidekicks, you know, together in their own little team, and they would fight for the justice of uh, teenagers. Well, they do a pr pretty bad job of it. Th There's a number of notes here where it was just like, so these, as far as I know, these characters haven't really met before. They know of each other. 
but this is the first time they're teaming up. Yet, like, the only thing that Aqualad says, like, his, his only dialogue, other than when he's directly addressing the fight they're doing, when they're interacting with each other, is just to, like, slag on on Kid Flash for... <laughs> just, like, call him a loser. And uh, I don't know where that came from. Uh, it seems... Yeah, yeah it, it's probably like, you know, they figured, you know, Johnny Storm and Ben Grimm are always going after each other. Um, I mean, that might be where that came from. Aqualad... Not as natural coming you know, I, with these characters, though. No, and I know this has been discussed before on the forums. The, the inclusion of Aqualad causes all sorts of problems. Right here from their first team-up, where he contributes nothing in terms of dialogue other than to just randomly yell at other people, but then he... They have to try and come up with ways for him to be useful, and even when they do, they completely mess it up. Like, there's a sequence where they decide that one of them needs to follow the boat that the bad guy's going away on, and for some reason, instead of Aqualad following the boat, Robin grabs a hold of the back of the boat and just holds onto the back of it and is, like, dragged behind the boat. And I was like, he's in the ocean. <laughs> you, you have Aqualad. Well, and they, and and they leave him on shore. And with these Teen Titan stories, you know, the town that they go to is always near a lake or a river or the ocean or something. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, eventually yeah. The, the, the town gets flooded and then we get a fantastic sequence, which I loved just because it allowed someone, one of the townspeople to shout the line, Look, Aqualad is riding into town on a narwhal. <laughs> I love that, even yeah. though in the previous panel he was riding a stingray and he just, I just, he hopped onto a narwhal just so he could look cooler going into town, which I appreciate. I well, would do this. If I had a narwhal, narwhal, I would do the same thing. And doesn't the narwhal have to use his horn to poke a hole into the uh, groundwater or something so that the, chain, the town just drains out immediately? Yeah, something. <laughs> Yeah. The narwhal's more useful than Aqualad. This is basically <laughs> the team the team should be Kid Flash, Robin, and this narwhal. And then at the end, one thing that struck me was earlier in the story, the teenagers have all been kidnapped and they're being forced to like build this thing on this island for no apparent reason. And the teenager who's leading the group of teens, teen captives, puts this plan in motion to try and basically snatch away the magic rod from the guy that's allowing him to control the weather and it, he fails and then at the end of the issue robin's like you know i've got this great plan but this is a hawkman-esque great plan so it should be in quotes where his plan is to do the exact same thing only this time it works <laughs> so i was like you know really yeah. Well, also, you know, I, I just remember, uh, you know, Kid Flash decides to help them out by building this thing on the island at super speed. It's like, why are you doing that at all? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you just beat that guy up? <laughs> so yeah. I mentioned, like, uh, I don't consider this to be the first appearance of the Teen Titans. In, in the world of comic book fans, I think comic book readers and collectors sometimes have a tendency to get so into the stories that they actually conflate continuity with the real world at no point in this story are the words teen titans mentioned or is there any mention of them forming a team they're just yeah. they randomly show up and they help each other in issue 60 which we'll get to in a little while later there it says teen titans on on the title has got wonder girl in the group and at, at the beginning when a call goes out to the teen titans batman's like what the hell are the teen titans and robin says <laughs> after this team up we decided to make a team together so 
I get a little frustrated. I've had, like I said, I've had some arguments with people that consider this to be the first appearance of the Teen Titans, but just in a strictly literal sense, the words Teen Titans and the, the idea of the Teen Titans did not exist until issue 60 came out a full year later. This, this is, was retroactively made the origin of the Teen Titans, but it's not actually an appearance of the Teen Titans as a team. So it's, I, this probably of no interest to anyone except for me, but I feel so much better now that I've said that on my podcast. Well, just remember, it's all just lines on paper. <laughs> well, I had to remember that when I read the next issue because <laughs> issue 55 is Metal Men and the Atom, and I'm not a fan of the Metal Men. Although mm-hmm. I will say that this story was a lot better than I was expecting it to be considering the metal men are in it. <laughs> and the Atom. And the Atom. Once again, the Atom is called in for like one, like a one specific reason. Right. He has um, to shrink down and get thrown into an Atom, right? Or, so, or something really small. Yes. There's a lot of pseudoscience in here, but since I like, like a child of the sixties uh, or a child in the sixties, I should say, I don't know anything about science. So when I was reading this, I was like, I love all the science stuff. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. <laughs> so they did a really good job of making it seem like it made sense. Yeah. It was much, it's much more realistic science than like Stan Lee was doing at Marvel. Where he was like, it's magnets and there's radiation. Don't, don't ask. In here, there's like this really uh, studied attempt to make it sound like it really makes sense. Well, at least make it sound like, you know, they looked something up. Yeah. <laughs> So in this story, uh, it turns out that um, Doc Magnus, before building the Metal Men, had created uh, another Metal Man called Uranium, but Uranium turned out to be evil, so Magnus deactivated it. Well, and, and this is something that you'll see in some other Haney stories where it hinges on somebody from somebody's past who was really never heard of before, and you know it's just there so that they can come back. To, uh, to be the antagonist in the story. Yeah, that reminds me of um, not an issue we're going to be talking about today, but the story that Botany uh, did later where it turned out that Batman has a brother that no one's ever heard of before. Thomas Wayne Jr., I think. But yeah, this story I, I thought was really interesting because there's a this really, really creepy series of murders where... The metal men are like horribly murdered one after another, whereas uranium sort of corrupts them so that they all commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that sequence was really kind of disturbing. I guess it's okay because yeah. they're robots, they're but robots. it was kind of it was yeah. kind of it was kind of <laughs> creepy. Um, and it also really struck me: uranium has built um, his own spouse, ro- evil uh, partner robot lady. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the most elegant way I could possibly have said that. Yeah. <laughs> And that's a real nice design on her. Her name was Agantha. I wrote that down. And yeah, I, I like her design. She you know, is kind of like an evil platinum. Um, and again, this is uh, Ramona Fredon, or Fraden, I think it's pronounced, uh, drawing it. And uh, she's got a really good uh, sense for character design, which we'll talk about when we get to Metamorpho. Yeah, I've, one thing that struck me with this is, um, so Uranium, he's got a grudge against his this father figure, Dr. Magnus because he feels basically rejected. You know, he was the the firstborn most powerful and then his father, you know, destroyed him because he didn't love him or whatever. I'm extrapolating a little bit, but this reminded me very much of the later origin and uh, of Ultron. Mm-hmm. 
And just like much later on, Ultron would also create his own Silver Bride in Jocasta. Like, there's a lot of parallels between this story, which came before those, and later stuff with Ultron and Jocasta, which as an Avengers fan, I found really interesting. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I'd say that's mainly that's mainly a coincidence, but the, it is interesting, you know, looking at it that way. So, I don't, I don't have anything further with this issue. Yeah. Uh, it, it's <laughs> like, uh, it was... A lot better than I was expecting a Metal Man story to be, and significantly better than the next Metal Man story, which we'll get to later on. Okay. Uh, but here we are, number 56. It's The Flash teaming up with the Martian Manhunter. So here we get two characters that have already both appeared in this book, teaming, they previously teamed up with other people, but now they're teaming up together. Yeah. And there's a f- few things here that uh, I didn't get, but basically there's this um, creature who's essentially the next attempt to do the half bird half fish creature from right. the hawkman thing where except for this time he can split in he split down the middle with the powers of two justice league members at a time and um it's like a robot sent from that was exiled from an alien planet and ended up on earth and uh there's a lot of things in here that were interesting because i was so confused by them. well yeah it's another situation where you know this planet wanted to create uh, robot versions of the Justice League or something like that. And there's a princess who can't wait to uh, see them. So she uh, activates them. And when the scientists come down, they're gone. And somehow this one gets to Earth. It's kind of weird. It's weird. One thing that I found very strange is that it seemed like everybody in the story knew who this alien queen was. Queen Titania, but as far as I can tell, this is her only appearance. Everyone in here just acts like, oh, it's Queen Titania of this place, sure. Yeah, we all know who that is, but who the hell is that? <laughs> um, also, we get more Iris being terrible. The ma- the robot reminded me a great deal of Amazo, um, uh, who can- is another robot that fights the Justice League and has the same powers. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, because... Iris is here. She's like hanging around a lot because she's you know, a news uh, a reporter covering the World's Fair that this is at. But they need a woman to disguise as Queen Titania or Princess Titania, and they go get Hawkgirl. You know, all, you know, why don't they ask Iris to do something? Well, they make like, a big Hawkgirl's deal. Hawkgirl's the only other woman they know. They make a big deal about Hawk Girl being an actress, which uh, I I didn't know she was an actress. News to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and. Um, I, it's also struck me that Hawkgirl does at least as much as Flash and Martian Manhunter do in this story and really should get equal billing with them on the cover because she's like a major part of the plot. But, but one thing that also struck me, we're going to be talking about this in detail, unfortunately, in just a little bit when we get to issues <laughs> 63 and 64. But this is uh, besides just the, the, the way that we see Iris being horrible and in the previous issue platinum was just like uh, i'm not sure if that was even written by haney might have been conager but in the last issue platinum was just like out of control with like lust for doc magnus because that's her only character trait yeah um yeah no but it is haney writing it in this issue we get queen titania another in a long string of really embarrassingly written women and in this case the reason the robot went berserk in the first place is because Quintetania was warned not to go near the robot because he was malfunctioning, but she decided she wanted to go and see how powerful he was because if he was really strong, she was going to marry him. Only, it turns out he's really ugly, so she was so horrified that she, like, 
cast him off into space because he's too ugly to be around her. And then he feels like really bad. So this is kind of another story where the the women are terrible. And <laughs> it it's basically the men are reacting to how bad the women are. And yeah. uh, it, it becomes a recurring theme throughout these Haney stories that he writes some of the most back-ass words retrograde female characters that I think I've ever read. <laughs> they're so bad. I don't think they're much different than anything else on the stands at the time. I see what you're saying, but when I will, I'm going to argue that point when we get to issue 63. Uh, okay. The okay. Uh, Supergirl Wonder Woman <laughs> team-up issue. Yeah, that's a couple years later almost, or a year later. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so there's Flash and Martian Manhunter. I mean, the story is another, you know, alien dupli- power duplication science gibberish story. And there's, uh, with a lot of these, there's also very little and sometimes no chemistry whatsoever between the two characters that are teaming up. Yeah. Um, part of that, I think, is just the Silver Age DC thing where the characters don't really have distinct personalities in a lot of cases. But I don't know, they're just like, there's no, like, Flash and Martian Manhunter. It could literally be any two characters doing the same thing that they do in, in this issue. There's no connection between them. Yeah, and it, you know, it might also be Haney's unfamiliarity with the with the characters and just, you know, just using them as a sperm board. Um, well, just one thing to mention here is, you know, it's Bernard Bailey art, which I thought was uh, pretty good. But in some ways, like, the background characters and you know the non-super scenes are kind of like the best best drawn things in there i don't know if he had much of a you know he created the specter but i don't know if he had much of a feel for superheroes at this point and speaking of creating superheroes that brings us to the debut in issue 57 of metamorpho the element man but that's something we're going to get into in our next episode That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, MDG, for joining me. Next episode, we'll pick up where we left off with the introduction of Metamorpho, the Element Man, in issue 57, and we'll carry this through the end of the experimentation era in Brave and the Bold, issue 73. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation. See you next time.